good people. Welcome back to another episode of Training Well Done, your podcast on the what, the why, and the how of quality training. I am your host, Coach Donald, and I am here with Coach Benny from Global Human Performance. What's up, Coach Benny? Hey, how's it going? Oh, uh, it's going, it's going. It's been a um, it's been a day, not the craziest day in the world, but as you saw earlier, I was telling you and Kyla, I got jacked up running through Shelly Park because I needed to get a release run. And I was tired, I needed to refresh and get a recovery run from yesterday. Because, yeah, between 12, they were 200s, but we did the 200 as a jog for the rest because it was, the, the, the field was frozen over. So we jogged to the 200, and my Garmin finally logged it for the full training load. So it was 233. You're like, what does that mean? If you were to go like do like a three mile easy run, mm-hmm. maybe not you, but if I were to do a three mile easy run, it would be like at 80, like that's just the, the arbitrary metric Garmin uses for like the load. If I were to do like a half marathon, it'd be like 300 something. This was 233. Oh damn. Just for some context, right? A 6K, I mean a 10K over six miles would be like 120. So then I go to YRC and I ran three miles. And then I heard my nephew throw up all night because uh, he, he just does weird stuff with food. And then I didn't get a whole lot of sleep. So I was like, oh, I need to get a refresher run. So I go and I'm running through the, the playground. Anybody listening, you're at Chumley Park. The playground at the intersection of Beacon, Panther Hollow, Greenfield Ave. I went running through there to the trail. And I saw that it was muddy, but like I had already run on snow and mud before, like on that same run. It wasn't like I was gonna slip and get busted. That's exactly what happened. And so then I'm later on sitting in Dover, hoping no one's judging me for coming in like a dirtball, I was absolutely not going home. But that's how I'm doing. <laughs> nice. I think we've all, uh, everybody has run outside in Pittsburgh winter. Cleveland winter has definitely been there. Yeah, oh, I can only imagine that. I feel like that's worse. In Cleveland? Yeah. Uh, Cleveland's worse because, well, it depends on whether you prefer your ice or your mud. Because Cleveland's colder, so everything just freezes solid. So, usually, if you get good at running on ice then it's just icy. But unlike in Pittsburgh, they actually treat the sidewalks. So the trails might be iced over, but at least the sidewalks are clean. Unlike mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh, where it's the property owner's responsibility and nobody, at least in the neighborhood that I live in in Southside, treats their sidewalks. So they just all freeze over. <laughs> they just say, liability is a liability. We'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, so for everybody listening, Coach Benny has been at GHP for what, like over two, like two years, a year and a half? Uh, it'll be two years in May. So yeah, a little over a year and a half, going on two years. Um, we met, well we met technically by way of Kyla, but we played Ultimate Frisbee together. And so Coach Benny's been here doing a lot of, uh, being a performance coach, does a lot of our trackside sprints. So for those of you who are like, trackside sprints, what's that? Typically, if you've seen videos of me doing stuff with the distance runners, at the same exact time, Benny's doing stuff with the short sprinters and other athletes inside. Um, super deep track background, very much track nerd. He's a, uh, I have a joke about Benny using 13-letter words to say hi. Um, I want you to give us a little background about like how you got into track, sports, and all that jazz. Um, all right, so I'll start like real early on. Pretty active family. Uh, parents have both played sports. They're from Russia, so they were figure skater. Uh, soccer, some hockey in there. So didn't do that as a kid. I actually started doing uh, martial arts um, up until from like 
early as I can remember, did some Taekwondo up until sophomore year of high school. And I had some friends who came out for the track team freshman year and uh, they convinced me to join sophomore year. I shouldn't say convinced, I was asthmatic, so I was still am asthmatic. Wasn't very good at running and they were giving me a lot of crap for, for being slow. So I'm like, you know what, Like, I'm gonna go out and show them. Picked sprints because knew I couldn't make it as a distance runner. I've always disliked distance running. It's just been a thing like ever since I was a kid. Didn't even like playing soccer all that much because there was too much running involved. <laughs> um, so yeah, came out for, for sprints, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, ended up being faster than a lot of my friends who, who pushed me to it. Um, but like, to be perfectly honest, I can't say that I got like really into it. Didn't take it super seriously until like the tail end of my junior year. I like improved a lot. I like grew up a little bit because I was always a small kid. Um, and like realized like, hey, I could be good at this. So uh, junior year going into senior year, started weight training, got some more serious about it. Um, and then uh, basically after I had already done the whole college application process, got into the school that I ended up going to, which is uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, um, saw that it was D3, took a look at the, the times, realized that like with my times I was running senior year, I could make it, and then basically walked onto the team uh, after contacting the coach. So I always like tell people honestly, like running track in college, literally best decision I've ever made in my entire life. Like it changed me as a, as a person, as an athlete. I like literally cannot imagine uh, what my life would be like if I decided to go to another school um, and didn't have the opportunity to run track. So I ran a case for four years, uh, mostly specializing in the short sprints, so 60, 100, 200, 4x1, 4x2. Managed to avoid running a 400 or a 4x4 my entire... The uh, entire four years, you didn't have to run a 400? No, because we had, a, our team had like five guys that were running sub 54, so a sixth person who would probably run like 54, 55, not consistently, um, was entirely unnecessary. <laughs> Um, I didn't even break 24 in the 200 my, my freshman year. I was like really, really of slow. Of college? Of college, yeah. Dude, what? Yeah, I had a really bad time in the in, in the 200. So it was like super tight hamstrings and very inelastic ankles. So like I would get out and then my very first track meet ever, um, I was running the 200 because I missed the 60 because I had a, a, an event for my fraternity in the morning. So I get out, you know, warm up on my race, and I go talk to my coach. I'm like, hey, coach, like, how was that? Because I've been training hard for the whole preseason. He was like, man, Benny, that's one of the best starts I've ever seen from a freshman. But then, like, 100 meters in, it looked like someone shot you in the ass. <laughs> like, you just hit a wall. Yeah, so I got much better at that, improved my 200 significantly, although I never really was a particularly strong 200-meter runner. Um, had success in the 4 by 100 meter and the 100 meter at the conference level. And yeah, overall improved significantly as an athlete, learned a whole lot. So I guess another uh, really key part of my college experience is I got really, really into weight training and tried to bring that into the team culture. So even before I started coaching, which I'll talk about in a second, um, I spent a whole lot of time with even people you know, my, in my year as a junior and a senior, but also with freshmen and sophomores, like bringing people into the weight room, getting them to enjoy it, getting them to know uh, what they're doing in the weight room and just making that a, not just a thing that the fast people on the team do, but making that a requirement for being on the team. And really proud of the fact that one of my biggest legacies, uh, even after I left, after I, I finished running, after I finished coaching, was that that is now a requirement. So we have strength standards on the Case Western track and field team. So basically if you're a guy and you can't squat, 
think it's your body weight, can't clean like 0.7% of your body weight, then like you can't be on the team. doesn't matter what event you do. Really? Yeah. You can't be on the team? Mm-hmm. You have up until you're, I want to say it's November of your freshman year for cross-country runners, for people who ran cross-country, if they're on the distance, then they have until February. But yeah, it's a, it's a hard cutoff. So like, what if the person's really fast and they suck in the weight room? And what if someone's like not fast, like like 11, 9, 12 flat, 24, 8, can't run under a minute to four, not fast, but they're like double body weight. If you, you will almost never be cut for being too slow on, on the team. You won't necessarily go to every meet and you won't definitely won't go to the travel meets. You won't get on the conference team. But if you like, are dedicated to improving, then you won't, you won't get cut. Um, what if you come in and you're like a 10-9, 22-9, or 22-8 type runner, or like you're like a 51 runner, but you just suck in the gym and it takes you way longer than that? If you're actively lifting, uh, so for example, one of uh, the kids that I coached when I was a fifth year, um, he has scoliosis, so he hasn't been able to squat like his entire life. I mean, unless there's a medical thing that, that contraindicates an athlete squatting or cleaning, there's no way that a sprinter who runs 10-9 is unable to get up to a single bodyweight squat in a reasonable period of time. So let's say they start preseason in September, first round of testing is in November. And I think even if you fail that, then you get another try in January. The only way you do that is if you just refuse to go to the weight room, and in which case you're trying to build a, a lifting culture on the team, right? So then you just don't deserve to be there. Although <laughs> I will say it hasn't, in the past couple of years, that hasn't happened that somebody is super duper fast and refused to lift and couldn't, uh, got kicked, kicked from the team. You'd have to do something really egregious for that to be the case. The biggest thing, honestly, the hardest thing was getting the, the distance runners on board because it's a lot easier to convince sprinters to get into the weight room than it is distance runners, especially if they were already pretty fast. And, you know, to run distance at case, like you're looking at freshmen coming in with like 430 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were pretty, probably pretty top tier, 430, 420 miles. They were probably pretty top tier in high school and saying like, hey, you have to get into the weight room or else you're not allowed on the team anymore as a... Can be a tough sell sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Too bad you have a bunch of Marys. Yeah. No, Mary. I mean, the the kids that we have at GHP would have been the strongest distance. They would have been some of the strongest kids on the team. I mean, by the time sophomore year, I was squatting only two fifty to seventy five, and I was one of the stronger people on the team, not counting the throwers. And then by the time I was a fifth year we had multiple freshmen and sophomores that are getting like, we're getting like 315, 350 at, you know, sub 200 pound body weight. So it was a, a pretty big deal. It really helped that my sophomore year, we had a, a, a coach named uh, Rocco Matolo who was an absolute genius with weight training. So most of my fundamental knowledge, not necessarily about how to do the lifts, I learned that in, in high school, but about weight training, programming, um, biomechanics, all of the the fun stuff that comes with that was from Rocco and from Rocco and our head coach, uh, Coach Schmoll, using me as a guinea pig. So mm-hmm. myself and a couple of the other sprinters who were really into weightlifting, every time they wanted to try out a new program or a new methodology or anything, 
So French contrast training, the small love method, all stuff that became kind of a mainstay of, of our weight training programs, all of it was tested on us because either we would respond to it and then we would get strong and fast or we wouldn't respond to it or we wouldn't like it or we could give constructive feedback beyond people just complaining that it was really hard. How long would you do any of those programs for to like make sure that you tested it long enough? We would do them for, depending on what the program was, so probably about like six to eight week cycles. So it was broken down into, uh, so you have your September through November, so your pre-preseason captain's practices. And for those that aren't aware, that's the period where NCAA coaches aren't allowed to practice with the team. So they're allowed to write workouts, but they're not allowed to be present at practices. And then we would start another cycle from November through early January. So for that was basically Thanksgiving break through for when you come back from winter break. And then we would have the indoor competitive season program, then a little bit of a break. And then the first half of the outdoor season would be another cycle. And then the final peaking competitive cycle. So that was for conference championship for postseason, and then you would roll into summer. And then summer weight training was definitely a lot more free form. So that was when you know, we would get programs from the coach, or in my case, to talk about coaches with what I wanted to do, but that was kind of a, every athlete, if they wanted to, could do something different. So, you know, one summer, I just, I wanted to put on weight. I wanted to just bulk up and get to like a higher muscle mass, which then I just then kept for another three years. And then another summer, I did a lot of like plyometrics and stuff to build resilience. Um, another one, it was just like straight, GPP just doing four by six for an entire summer just to again mostly build resilience for, for injury prevention so and then within those cycles within those cycles we would do uh, shorter sub cycles so for example in the French contrast that was broken into two week uh, the three or four two week blocks uh, working on different stuff and having like slightly different uh, programming exercises in there Word. So through the course of that, like how did how did learning all that like affect how you categorize weight training? Because a lot of us, we people get into weight training, they think, all right, I gotta do my bodybuilding, my back day, my arm day, my three by tens, right? And being able to try so many different methods and also pairing that with different times in the competitive season, how did that change your view of what weight training was? Especially having already been a runner too. So I think I was fortunate that my very first exposure to weight training, well technically my first exposure to weight training was like most teenage boys just messing around with some dumbbells and pull-up bar that my parents bought me. Um, so that was the summer before my senior year, so let's call that zero. But then my actual first exposure to weight training was for a strength and conditioning coach that we had in my high school that was also one of our track coaches. He was the sprint riddle jumps coach. So. I always like had a view of weight training as being a supplement to sprinting and I actually have never done a traditional bodybuilding split. So literally my entire training career is basically full body every time I was in the weight room. So there's different exercises, sometimes you'd be squatting, sometimes you'd be hinging, sometimes you'd be doing Olympic lifting, sometimes it'd be almost entirely plyos, but I've never in my life done, you know, back and buys and then chest and tries and then legs and core. I've always liked doing full body splits, whether that be one day a week or four day a week. And uh, I think my college experience just refined that. So I 
gained knowledge of knowing how different movements and different tempos and different cycles and different sets of programming, how those related to running in general and then sprinting specifically. So for example, uh, my junior year we did the small up method, which basically involves a massive amount of high, a uh, massive amount of very high intensity of, in my case it was squat and clean. So you do six by six on Monday, and then eventually you do another, that was A day, and then B, C, and by the time you get to D day, you're doing 10 by three. So my squats took, just my squats took like 50 minutes. Oh yeah, 10, 10 <laughs> sets of just one exercise, that's a whole hour. Yeah, it was, uh, so I know that was the most, most professional I've ever felt as an athlete because for that six week block, my junior and senior year during winter break, you know, you're home from college, you got nothing to do, you're just hanging out at home. I would wake up, eat breakfast, relax a little bit, drive to the gym, have like a two and a half hour lift, relax for a little bit, get some food that I packed for myself, drive to the track, do another two hour run, and then go home. And that, I just did that for six weeks. Um, the fact that I managed to do it without getting hurt was probably one of the highlights, like one of the proudest. Made me really, I had to be very in tune with my body, like listen to my body, but being able to train that hard, I was like, wow, this is what professional athletes are like. They just wake up and train, except they also have, you know, thousands of dollars of massage therapists, and <laughs> dietitians and all that. I had to make all my own food and do all my own recovery, but still. Um, but anyway, yeah, so, so uh, doing all of that basically requires you to understand why you're doing everything otherwise you're just kind of kind of going through the motion so that small of method that we did was we we actually i say small of method because i think it's a technical name for it we called it the pain train because it freaking <laughs> hurt and our coach told us you ride the pain train you'll get to where you want to go that was the that was that was the tagline ride the pain train you'll go where you want to go yeah That's and it it did i mean Granted, this was after four months of doing general prep, so a lot more four by six, five by five, you know, three by eight, that sort of rep scheme. But after that, after doing six weeks of this method, I went from a 315 squat to a 375 squat, and from a 215 clean to a 250 pound clean. And uh, did the same thing with slightly less impressive results the following year, because I was focusing more on, on power, but went from a 225 power, power clean to a 250 pound power clean so it it works and was uh, additional in addition to giving coach valuable insight on uh, you know like this is a method that works for sprinters it also became a banner that he could just fly be like hey do this program and you'll put 50 pounds in your squat like you see coach Benny over there he did it two years ago put 50 pounds in the squat and PR it in a 60 by like a quarter of a second from yeah, I went from seven being like, a, that was, after I did that program was when I ran like my best ever race. So I went from running seven two-ish in the 60 to running 696 after doing that six weeks of that program. So just to let y'all know, mm -hmm. if there those listening, when you're talking about a race that's like seven seconds, even like for a hundred meters, that's like 10, 11, 12 seconds, a quarter of a second is a massive improvement. Massive, I mean, it's a big improvement at 200. But to do that in a 60 is crazy. Like, that's like, that's probably the sprint equivalent of going from like a six minute mile to a 5.30 mile in a month. Yeah. I don't know if they exactly correlate, but in my experience, they seem similar. Yeah. Um, and then, 
so that got me really strong. And then for the 100 and the 200, the French contrast, which for those who are unfamiliar, is basically where you mix doing heavy lifts. So let's say you do three reps of squat at your 90% of your one rep max, and then immediately you'll go into some vertical jumps. And then you'll do some broad jumps that are resisted. So, you know, it's a little bit more than your body weight is your resistance. And then you go into another slightly lighter lift. And you're basically going from moving very slowly and moving a lot of weight to moving exceptionally quickly and just outputting a lot of power. So doing those, um, we did that in the outdoor that year. And I don't remember what the numbers were, but like every single person who did that program who had already done months of lifting beforehand, because this is something that I also you know want to point out for, for anybody listening. All of these programs that I'm talking about right now, they're peaking programs. If you ever lifted before and you try to ride the pain train, you're just going to hurt yourself and you're going to have a bad time. But if you spend six months doing general prep beforehand, getting really resilient, building your work capacity, doing all of that, and then you get really, really strong uh, on, on pain train, small off method, and then do another couple months of lifting and then do something like French contrast, which is very plyometric and Olympic lifting heavy, like that's where you see your success. So being able to think of your lifting as an athlete, as a you know, nine, 12 month process and not just what am I doing today, tomorrow, this week, the week after that um, was, was really, really important. And I think it's easier in some way for track athletes because the season's so long. So it almost forces you to think like that because if you, you can't do like, not saying all football players, but especially high school football players and high school football coaches a lot of the time, it's like, okay, I'm gonna lift one way for nine months and then in season, which is three, four months long, I'm just gonna do something entirely different. And best case scenario, you know, you do some peaking cycle and you don't lose all of your strength and you don't lose all of your size. Worst case scenario, if you don't have very good programming, then the stuff you did in the past nine months by the time, you know, you stop lifting heavy in October, by the time you get to your postseason in November, and December, you might have some issues. Whereas as a track athlete, uh, especially a distance track athlete, like you're competing in some form from September all the way through May and June if you compete in college. And if you're a high schooler that does club, then you're competing, you know, 365 days a year basically. So having those specific cycles and spacing your programming out throughout the year in a very directed fashion is hugely important. That's definitely something that I learned in college, fortunately, because we had really good strength and conditioning coaches. Recognize not everybody has that uh, has that luxury. So luckily at GHP, these athletes do. And so Agreed. yeah, for sure. Tell me a bit about what you found different, like like for you as a coach going from coaching college to coaching here. And I mean, coaching here also involves I guess different facets of from what. Let's not let's not talk about the under tens, but like the middle school, high school athlete kind of thing, or the adults. Like, what's different even about those, or about the whole concept of being in a private coaching setting versus being in a college coaching setting? Because like most most setting most oh my god most settings are you work private, you work like team based professional, mm -hmm. you work private. I mean, there's nuances in in overlaps but those are kind of the three main ways most people coach like what would you find on the difference between those two for you so uh i'll say the obvious first huge difference in maturity level between middle school high school versus uh college athletes especially the college that i went to so case western is a engineering school it's a bunch of very high strung very type a stem minded folks which is 
what I am. Like I studied uh, polymer science and engineering, material science engineering. So you can talk to ev almost every athlete in a very technically minded way. And even the ones that aren't super into the mechanics of running and aren't into track and field as a intellectual endeavor and not just an athletic endeavor, they, they get it. You speak the same language. Um, I think Donald can attest that I ran into some issues there when I first started when I first started coaching here where I had to change my communication style um, because not everybody wants to hear about the specific mechanics of every single drill. Sometimes athletes just want to be told to do it, how to do it, whatever. And then once I've built up some of that rapport, so so some of my sprinters that I've been working with for basically the whole time here, they I understood how they think a little bit better, they know how I think a little bit better, and I've reached kind of a middle ground for knowing when is the technical explanation necessary, and sometimes when you just gotta say, listen, this is how you do it, demonstrate it, fix it, and move on from there. Um, and then also working with adults was something that I think if I would not have just not have been able to do when I was 22 when I first finished running because in my head I was still in that athlete mindset of, of like I knew how athletes thought and I didn't know what you know somebody who is an active adult but doesn't train aggressively putting their body on the line every single day to succeed thinks and not that I've been out of school that long but you know I've been out for what four years now definitely gotten into that mindset and whether you're 25 or 50 or 60 there's still the same idea of like, yeah, you have goals, you know, you're training for something, but you're also training for longevity. Um, injuries suddenly become a lot more important when they take weeks to heal instead of days. <laughs> uh, so figuring out the the best way to approach something like that. And then also um, understanding the like lower intensity involved when you have, like, like I talked about this earlier, but like NCAA system, you got four years. You come in as a freshman, yeah, you put everything on the line, you're done as a senior. Whereas now, you know, somebody comes in, age 30, has never worked out before, your goal as a coach should be to get them into a spot where they're 30 years old and they're gonna be working out until they're, you know, 95 years old and in a nursing home. Even through then, like, we're trying to build a lifelong approach to, to fitness. And uh, that's something that comes in not just from a technical coaching ability, making sure people are doing things right, but making sure people are having a good time in the gym, they're enjoying it. It's, uh, as, you know, as Donald talked about before, I'm sure, it's the highlight of their day. It's like, yeah, like I get to come into GHP. It's not something I have to do, it's something I get to do. So you wanna build that environment more so than just telling them what to do. Whereas in college, even when athletes complain, like they're gonna show up. It doesn't matter how bad of a time they're having, they're gonna show up because if they didn't, then they wouldn't do an NCAA sport. Mm -hmm. So it's a definitely a different environment that, that you have to foster. How do you have to, how do you foster that environment to get a 30 year old to be like, all right, didn't do this before, but I'm gonna do it now. Uh, I think the biggest thing is really connecting with their goals. So, you know, we have everybody from 30-year-old Frisbee players who have been playing Ultimate for 15 years but have never stepped foot in a weight room to people that just have a kind of a general fitness goal, like I want to be healthy, I want to lose weight. And you have to understand why they're there. And my personal approach, like, again, not as technical as I used to be, but I'm still pretty technically minded, right? So I try to have people understand the why of what they're doing and I think that gives them better buy-in. So if you tell somebody to do, you know, a certain program, a certain set of exercises, like they'll trust you, you know, they pay money to be here, they recognize that we have a good value, but if they know why they're doing it, then they're bought in. So they know like after I go home, it's like, 
I don't even have to ask the coach. After six months of this, I know like this is why Benny gave me this. This is why Donald gave me this. I know even if I don't come into GHP for a month because I'm on vacation, um, but you know something's bothering me. It's like oh, we did this and you know my back hurt three months ago, and Coach Benny gave me this thing to do, and I can't come into the gym right now because I'm out of town. But like maybe I'll remember this, and you know even if they they stop coming to to. GHP or another gym for whatever reason like those are lifelong habits and knowledge that they can then take with them and I think that that's that's really really important so we talk about these lifelong habits and things they can take with them something that we were talking about the other night when um, uh, Eden had our chat up team in here were these core beliefs in fitness and so like I have mine and yeah I should probably make an episode about these actually um, so you'll be the first to do that, but they're reflected in the gym, right? I talk about, I have an episode called Fast Days Fast. I talk about our six main movements. People should be able to squat, hinge, push with their upper body, pull, rotate, do these things on one leg. Um, being able to ha- use a lot of tempo training when it comes to eccentrics and isometrics for low intensity work for new people, like things like that. These are these core beliefs and things that are reflected in how I train and how I handle those relationships what are these things for you talk about some of the things that you feel like people who get in who start training should be able to do over time and make that like an automatic part of how they move sure so uh yeah donald and i were talking about this a couple days ago and i actually gave it even some more some more thought because i think it's important also as a coach to know like donald said what your north star is so what things people should be able to do besides the various exercises, lift and safely, etc. So we're gonna call these the riding the bike of, of weight training. So in other things, these are things that for an athlete who weight trains on some level experience, they should be so automatic that it should be as intuitive as riding a bike, uh, basically. So a lot of these, uh, my examples are a little bit more geared toward a competitive athlete or a weightlifter, but on some level these apply to anybody who makes weight training a regular part of their life, their workouts, training, exercise, or whatever. So there are uh, four big ones. So my first one, breathing. So people talk about breathing for every sport, talk about it for yoga, stretching, meditation, whatever. And what I think of it for weight training is being intentional about your breathing. So that means knowing how to breathe, how to move your breath, and how to use it. So the example I like to, there's, there's, there's two big things in weight training. So the first one is talking about the difference between breathing up and breathing down. So you can breathe with two major parts of your torso. So you can breathe with your belly and you can breathe with your chest. A good example of that, if you wanna try it at home, is if you can take a big breath, fill your lungs up, and you feel your stomach expand and your shoulders don't move, that's breathing down, it's breathing into your belly. If you take a big breath, your stomach stays flat, but your shoulders come up and your chest expands, that's breathing up. So they both have valid uses, both in running and in weight training. So being able to know why you should do one or the other and being able to intentionally do one or the other, I think is one of those things that you should walk away, like in any sport after you finished, knowing how to do it. And then the second thing is a little bit more specific. It's called Valsalva Maneuver. So that's something that's really important for bracing. So that's, uh, a drill maneuver where you basically breathe down into your belly and then brace your core and push against that stored breath that you have in your lungs and in your stomach. So that has the effect of stiffening your spine 
and making it safer to perform heavy movements like a bench press or a squat or a deadlift. But again, once it's something that's as automatic as breathing, it's something that you should do. If you're picking up a heavy couch or a refrigerator, boom, ball solving maneuver. People talk about lift with your legs, not with your back. That's great, but if your torso is super unstiff, unstable because you don't know how to brace, you don't know how to breathe, you're still probably gonna hurt yourself. So that's, that's one of those things, again, useful in weight training, uh, also useful in daily life. I like to call that um, punching the brick wall. So, I'm sorry, squeezing the brick wall. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. Like, I'm like, all right, you gotta squeeze the brick wall in your stomach. Squeeze the brick in your stomach. Like, is a way to think about that, or not really, is a way to not think about that, actually. Yeah, and, and like, again, one thing I really wanna emphasize is, so I've been weight training for almost 10 years now, and all of these things are, once you learn them, you never forget. It's, again, it's like riding a bike. I can do that Valsalva maneuver. I don't even think of it as a Valsalva maneuver. I just think of it as breathing. Yeah, like, I can do it on, I can do it on command. I'm gonna sound really weird on the podcast <laughs> if I try to talk when I'm doing that. Like, I do it when I'm lifting heavy stuff. It's, it's instinctive. And that's kind of, that's my goal eventually, is to get everybody to that point where you just do it without thinking about it. It's just something that happens as soon as you get under the bar or uh, bend down to pick up a couch. So the second and third one are posture and shoulder control. So they're definitely definitely related. Um, and basically, every athlete should be able to control the position of their spine, pelvis, and shoulder blades. So what does that mean? People talk about joints in the body. Everybody knows you got a wrist, you got an elbow, you got a, um, you got a, uh, you got a wrist, you got an elbow, um, and those are, you know, obvious, obvious joints. But you also have a lot of smaller joints in between the vertebrae and your spine, in your scapula, which are your shoulder blades, your shoulder joint can move around in space, your pelvis can tilt back and forth and rotate, and there are a lot of different ways to move all of those little things around in your back. There are, I'm not going to say there are wrong ways to move, because there are no wrong ways to move. There are safer and less safe ways to move. The idea is that an athlete should have control over all of those things. So an athlete should be able to uh, what we call anterior and, pel uh, anterior and posterior pelvic tilt, which is basically where you tilt your pelvis forward, tilt it back. Um, you can move your shoulder blades around in space, which has the effect of basically moving your whole shoulder joint forward and back. So not just rotating at the shoulder joint, but actually being able to move it in space. That's important for stabilizing the upper back for squats and deadlifts and other exercises. And then uh, position of the spine. So, you know, you might have heard coaches and other fitness professionals talk about a neutral spine. So a neutral spine is basically if you have a healthy spine in the relaxed position, it should have this nice gentle curve. Um, but then you can also consciously bend your spine forward or bend it backward. And all of those things are useful for different kinds of movements. So again, there's no right way. I'm not saying every exercise should be done with a neutral spine. You should always hold a neutral spine. You should always have your shoulder blades or pelvis in a certain position. But being able to control that movement and having the mind-muscle connection to be able to uh, to be able to move those various parts of your body in space is hugely important and as You know as, as as you might expect The more control you have over your spine the healthier you can keep it So knowing that it's like okay 
again, I'm lifting something, I have a neutral spine versus I have some tilt to my pelvis, or if you're doing a push-up, it's like where are my shoulder blades oriented in space? It gives an athlete uh, the ability to keep themselves significantly healthier in the long term. So both in the weight room, when they're running, when they're playing sports, and 10, 15, 20 years down the line um, in, their, in their daily life. Nice, nice. And then the last one is a little bit different and is, I would say, almost even more general than the previous few. And it's having a movement-muscle relationship. So what does that mean? It means that every athlete should know, in broad strokes, uh, the target muscle of their most commonly done exercises or most commonly done movements for non-weight training or non-drilling specific, uh, non-drilling, non-drilling specific movements. So in other words, uh, a good example is you know being able to flex your pectoral muscles in the mirror. That's something that you know it's just a joke. Terry Crews does it on Old Spice commercials, but it's a really good example of mind-muscle connection. So it doesn't matter how big or strong or how weak and small your chest is. Every single person has the ability to flex their pecs in the mirror. It's just a matter of building the mind-muscle connection. So being able to actively control those muscles to be able to flex them to squeeze them without you know, moving your shoulder or your, your arm around in space. And being able to do something like that gives you the ability to know, it's like, okay, let's say you're doing a push-up, you're doing a bench press. You do 10 reps of bench, and you're like, wow, like, my triceps are really tired, and I didn't feel that in my chest at all. So if you have a good understanding of movement-muscle relationships, you'd know, hey, maybe I should move my hands closer together, move them farther apart, like change the angle of my hands, do something, and adjust, you doing your next set, it's like, okay, now I'm feeling this in my chest. Again, pull-ups, really common problem. People feel, pull, people feel pull-ups in their arms instead of in the, the big muscles of the back. So I'm not saying that every athlete should, or every person should know the idiosyncrasies of every single movement that they've ever done in the gym. But in broad strokes, knowing the, the big picture, knowing uh, the connection between where you should be feeling a movement and where you're actually feeling a movement and then theoretically being able to adjust for that is super important. So one more time, I'll give the example, picking up heavy furniture. You're helping your buddy move a house, you wake up the next morning, you're like, wow, my lower back is super duper tired. Like it is very, very fatigued. And that should probably not be the case. Like if, if you're moving heavy things with good form, like your legs might be fatigued, you're glutes, your hamstrings, but if your lower back is tired, there's probably something to adjust. So if you have a good movement muscle relationship, you know, all right, next time I'm moving this couch, ooh, I'm feeling a twinge in my lower back, like maybe I should adjust the position of my hips, move the, uh, adjust the position of my back, brace my core a little bit, might be able to feel that more uh, in, my, in my legs instead of in my, in my lower back. So these are all things that uh, you learn in the gym and learn through sport, but you're able to take these into daily life in a super unconscious, just easy to remember kind of way. So when it comes to like that mind movement, um, muscle connection, 
when you're in the act of coaching, how do you go about getting athletes to start understanding that? You know, some athletes they have this wonderful kinesthetic awareness. You don't. I like to use a lot of external cues, like so. I said, like squeeze the brick, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas some athletes, when you're teaching them, let's say RDL, you can literally tell them, hey, if you push your hips like this, you'll be able to get in position to keep your back tight like that, and they're like, okay, boom. But they're generally not the rule. Mm-hmm. They're more the exception. But on the other hand, there's also people who seem to like. They don't even know where their pointer finger is. <laughs> and so on that spectrum, um, how do you help them learn to understand that over time? That's a, that's a really good question and something that I, uh, when I was in, in school, I had no idea because I was generally an athlete that had that like reasonably good uh, kinesthetic awareness. And uh, one of the actually other coaches at Case, I saw him coaching his athletes in the weight room and he was huge with tactile feedback. So if you're doing an inverted row, for example, right, that's something that is very heavy on the upper back, but, and, and lats to some extent, but almost nobody their first time does it that way. They just pull entirely with their arms. So he would take athletes and just poke them super duper hard in their upper back and be like, all right, if you're not feeling a squeeze where my fingers are, then like stand up, reset, and then do it again, and then do it again and again and again until you would feel it in the right, in the right spot. So... That to me is, aside from cueing or like having athletes look in a mirror, which I'm not generally a big fan of because that can cause a whole bunch of other problems, that's probably the number one kind of trick or cue you can use when just verbal feedback, verbal instruction doesn't work. Um, That's especially useful for exercises like pulling exercises because for something like an RDL or a squat, usually if they're not using the right muscles, they're also not doing the movement correctly. Whereas for an inverted row or a pull-up, the movement could look like 95% correct. And really the only way to tell that an athlete's using the right muscles is knowing, is them feeling that they're using the right muscles. So this gives you a little bit of, gives the athlete feedback. And then also sometimes, you know, if the athlete's comfortable with it, obviously, you know, you can feel the right muscles flexing in the right portions of the movement. Um, if you're not comfortable with that, I use a stick. All my all the athletes at GHP, probably not all, a lot of the athletes at GHP are like, Benny, why do you always carry a stick around? And it's so I can poke them. <laughs> <laughs> um, usually in the stomach to brace their core or in the upper back because they're not, you know, holding their shoulders in a properly retracted position. I like how you have a very useful reason for carrying a stick around the gym. I generally do it because I'm fidgety and like I just like to be busy and spinning sticks is fun. I mean it's also that, 100% that, but like it also gives me this useful coaching tool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what's like one like particularly common piece? You mentioned like you'll poke them in the stomach to like help them brace their core. How do you find that that helps them do that? What's an example of like you seeing like, ah, like figure out that that works? So I think one really good example is push-ups because push-ups are one of those exercises where if you're taught the wrong philosophy for the exercises, it just, it doesn't make any sense. So what I mean by that, if somebody tells you a push-up is a chest exercise, they're wrong or they're not really teaching you how to do the exercise most effectively. Push-up is a full body exercise. I mean, you have a plank, you don't think of a plank as just being a shoulder exercise, even though your shoulders do get tired. Same thing, when you're in a push-up position, you wanna be working your core, your glutes, your whole body to stay straight. So a lot of athletes have a problem where they'll get tired, where their chest is still still fresh because they're strong, but their lower back will get fatigued or their core will get fatigued and they bend. 
So having the stick, basically every time they start to form that that um, that U shape, you just poke them, and then they immediately suck up back into a neutral spine. So you get that immediate feedback on every single rep, and then again, eventually it becomes a little bit more second nature. That's something I could do a lot better, is cueing the glute part. Um, sometimes I get the upper back, and I think I could do better with the upper back part. Really good about the elevation of the hips, but that's actually something to think about next time I have somebody do push-ups is being able to get the all basically almost four parts mm. the chest the front of the hips the back of the hips and the upper back all like a, not aligned i mean some of it results in better mm. alignment but also getting activation because it's something that i don't always think about when i do push-ups uh, and i think that's something that might require a little more reflection it's a good point you made yeah especially for push-ups it's also very much a psychology thing so you know you have some some athletes who frankly think that they're good at push-ups because they've been doing it incorrectly or less efficiently for a long time and it's one of those things where it's a lot harder to do it that way so suddenly you go from it's like coach why can i i used to be able to do 10 push-ups and now i can only do three it's like well you weren't doing like the whole let's the, the hardest variation let's say of a push-up and like this is this is the right way to do it um also on a side note with that is i i really like to explain that uh, a lot of the times when you're learning a new movement or learning a new version of a movement that it's not always a linear process so it's funny because I think track athletes intuitively understand that for running form but they don't get it for um, for moves in the weight room so if you tell somebody especially a sprinter it's like hey we're gonna mess with your block start and it's gonna feel weird for a month but then eventually you'll get faster totally cool with that but you say hey we're gonna mess with your push-up form and you're gonna go from being able to do 10 push-ups to three push-ups they're going like but I used to be able to do 10 push-ups, and now I can only do three. It's like, yeah, but if you do it properly, then you'll be able to do 20 a month and a half from now. So there's that, uh, I, always find, I always find that element to be, to be fun. So a question for you, and it's based on the notification that we just got. Okay. Kyla posted in the member wins about uh, Fitzhugh just hitting this 200 pound RDL for six reps. Oh, damn. And I remember, I don't know if you remember when Fitzhugh started, he's been here for like, a year, year and a half, something like that. He's been here since at least the early part of last year, if not 21. And seeing him, like, when he first started in for like months, him and Kyla were using like 20 pound kettlebells. And like in the back of my head, I was like, when are y'all gonna lift something heavy? Like this man didn't pick up a barbell for months. <laughs> and like all of a sudden he's hitting like, 200 pound trap bars and hitting these crazy she's posted like three or four big things in the in the wind channel like the last month or two and what do you think about with the long long term i mean a year and a half is not like long term but still in the build-up process of taking it slow i mean even someone like mary mary's been doing this for i guess almost four years but like you know she was someone who's a little 10 pound kettlebell but she was also a middle school middle school girl um, now she's a junior and she's like deadlifting 225 pounds, 35 actually, I'm sorry. And what do you think about that ability to better learn those basics and fundamentals when it comes to the mind muscle activation, building up the postural strength and being able to like move your body in a determined way and how that almost accelerates your ability to get stronger, not at the front though, on the back end. Mm -hmm. So I think that all of those things with the possible exception of some of the well actually no i think all of those things can 
don't require you necessarily to slow down. I don't even think of it as a slowing down of progression because very there are very few moves that there's multiple ways to do where one of them isn't almost entirely wrong, I get, depending on your philosophy. So like we've been talking about push-ups. Like if you're not doing push-ups with a flat back, to me you're not doing push-ups. You're doing another exercise that looks kind of like a push-up. <laughs> so to me I don't think of it as like, oh, you're slowing down the progression. You're just, you're just learning how to do the exercise the right way. And same thing for all of these like heavy strength moves. Um, pretty much all of them, like especially the breathing, like you learn how to do Valsalva maneuver, you put 15 pounds on your squat literally the first time that you do it right. Same thing with the shoulder control and the postural stuff. If you don't have anything to unlearn, learning those as you're just naturally getting stronger, like they're gonna happen at the same time. So I'm a big proponent of basically, the only time I'll ever tell an athlete to do less weight or less reps is either if it's an assistance exercise and we're working on something specific, or if uh, they have bad form. But for the most part, learning the posture, learning the mind-muscle connection, learning the shoulder control, all of those things can happen while you're lifting heavy. Not necessarily at your maximum intensity, but you know, most of our programs are spent lifting in the 8 to 20 rep range. We have very few people who are consistently going sub-8 reps, which is where you're in the space where it is so heavy that all you're thinking about is just moving the weight and nothing else. So for the most part, um, just emphasizing all of this stuff throughout the workout is going to have athletes learn it and get stronger at the same time. And I, I, I just love watching people get stronger. So I'm always going to tell, I'm always going to tell them, put more weight on the bar. We were joking around in a session the other day. It's like you, uh, an athlete have asked like, Hey coach, like, should the weight be heavier? Answer is almost always yes. Unless they're like <laughs> a 17 year old teenage boy and they're uh, bench pressing, then it might be no. Might, Fair enough. They might kill themselves. But like <laughs> that's the only demographic that we work with on a regular basis where they put too much weight on. Usually yeah. it's the opposite problem. Um so thank you for that. That that's really good stuff. And hopefully everybody listening, you got something good out of that. Um last thing I just wanna I want you to talk about is a bit about like what you do at trackside sprints and tell everybody about like what that what the, what that's about, what are you working on? Gotcha. So the title of it is Trackside Sprints, but this is it, the sessions are by no means exclusive to sprinters or, or track athletes. Like they are um, effectively speed and power training. <laughs> so anybody that is looking to improve running technique, improve sprinting technique, improve speed for frisbee, soccer, baseball. Um, whatever is absolutely welcome at the session. So we usually start with doing a warm-up. We do a lot of running specific drills depending on the um, group that we have. We'll do some uh, plyometrics, we'll do lateral movement, rotational movement, maybe some agility work. And then uh, I tend to split the days between being focused on acceleration, so going from zero to your top speed, and then top speed or endurance sessions where you're working on either improve, in, sorry, increasing your maximum velocity or improving your ability to hold your maximum velocity or sub-maximal velocity for, for as long as you can. Um, and we have a variety of tools at our disposal. So right now we're, it's winter time, so we spend a lot of time working on the treadmill and a lot of time doing resisted runs, sled work, huge fan of sled work. Um, 
my, uh, my, I, when I was in college, I was coaching. Um, I spent most of my time thinking of either weird drills or how we can use existing equipment to supplement traditional sprint training. And at GHP, with our new space especially, um, have the opportunity to do that. So, yeah, fundamentally, it's if you want to get faster and you want to get jumpier, trackside sprints. You know how I came up with that name? How's that? So, Altus. You're uh-huh. familiar with Altus, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, uh, there's a legendary coach, Dan Path. Mm-hmm. He, he's the director of a place called uh, Altus Alpha Phoenix. And I've, I've always wanted to go for their certification. It's like a thousand dollars and you gotta fly there stay there and mm-hmm. I just it has I would love to do it and it would help me out but it's not the most high ROI way I could spend my money right now I don't have it to just do um, but they have a thing that they do where they, they have their formal seminar where like you go on the track and you're you're on the track with the coaches and you're like watching how they coach their athletes mm-hmm. and these this place trains like Olympic level athletes y'all so not just anybody and he says but the real learning happens at the pool and during our pool side, that's when you kind of get to talk to these coaches and, and, and shoot the breeze about different things. And one day, um, some, I think it was the Thunderbirds. Uh, I think that's how trackside started. Mm-hmm. Garner wanted me to do like sprint stuff with the uh, with the Thunderbirds back in like 2018. Mm-hmm. And I, the name just kind of came. I was making fun. I was like, oh, dude, call it trackside. It's on the side of the track. And like they can come and learn about sprinting and do some sprint workouts. Mm-hmm. And that's how Trackside actually came up as a name. And it really was just like a thing I would do in the spring. I would do it from like the, during the Ultimate Frisbee professional season. Mm-hmm. And it was just for the Thunderbird people. And then eventually I started inviting some other Ultimate people like in like 2019. And then in 2020 I was like, oh, I should do like a full track thing. Because I've started having other people come in like 2019. And then in 2020, the gym was still shut down. And... People, like, a lot of our track families have been here a long time. They were the people that are texting me answer, like, hey, it's, like, March, it's, like, May, and we didn't have an outdoor track season for high school or middle school, and we don't know if USATF is going to be a thing, but the kids want to go run. So it's like, all right, we're going to host workouts up at the Oval, and we started doing that, and that's how, like, track side, like, actually became a thing. Oh, damn. I didn't know. I didn't realize you uh, took inspiration from Alta, so that's actually, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I don't get to tell that story talk. I never think to do so. But um, cool. Thank you, Coach. This is awesome. Uh, hopefully, you know, I was, I mean, I, I should just put this in Slack. But like anytime you have something that's just burning you want to talk about, just schedule time to just do this. Um, for all of you listening, uh, if you're looking to be able to do some coaching with Coach Benny, he is a great coach here. He understands the weight training. He understands the sprint training. Um, you can hit us up, www.ghperformance.com, leave your information, say, hey, I want to train with Coach Benny. Um, he can take you one-on-one. Um, he can also, if you're a part of our strength and movement program, you'll also see him if you want to be a part of our trackside small groups. That's also something available to you. And so um, make sure uh, you like, subscribe, and share this podcast with somebody who you think should listen to this. There's a lot of great information here. We got to learn a lot about Coach Benny's background. Um, make sure you get out there, train hard. Uh, I don't have any mm, particular announcements I was thinking about, but just make sure you go and check us out. We're on Instagram at coach underscore Donald. Um, you don't use it. Do you use Instagram? Really? Uh, I'm on Instagram. I don't use it very much, but I'm on there. So technically, <laughs> uh, if anybody wants to follow you, could they follow you? 
Or is that yeah, like not a thing? Yeah, I think it's uh, Zelkin, Zel- Zelkin.Benny. It's not very exciting. Zelkin, isn't that like the name of the security, like web security kind of system? Belkin. Belkin. That's just totally unrelated, but when I was a kid, I thought that I was somehow related to that, because my name was Benny Zelkin, so B Zelkin, then B Elkin. So I saw that on a keyboard when I was like, I don't know, six. I'm like, oh my god, that's my keyboard. And my parents are like, that's fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Their response, that's legendary. Um, oh man, we have to talk about... Um, your mom being like super figure ice skater. I meant to ask you this: like, mm-hmm. are they like from Russia? From Russia? Yeah, off the from boat? Moscow. Yeah, they were fresh off the boat. Nineteen December ninety Like I knew they were Russia. I didn't know they were fresh off the boat. Ninety one. Yeah. That's like right when the Soviet Empire. Yeah. Soviet Union. Yeah, it's though. like the reason they were able to they were able to get out. Like oh, wow. a lot of lot of lot of bribery and government collapsing. Interesting. My grandpa literally like. Longer, longer story, but he had to bribe like a fair number of people and call in like every favor he had over a long year as a military engineer to get out of the country. Wow! So he left with them. He left a little bit after that, like like a year or so later. But yeah, wow! I did not know that. Yeah, you guys got some bonus content. All right, um, talk to you later. Ciao.